The following message is from Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. If you're new to our church, uh, my name is Peter Cho and I serve as the executive pastor here at ICC and oftentimes I get questions as to like, what, what do you do exactly as an executive pastor? No lead pastor ever likes preaching on this topic, but um, you know, I'm, I'm joking. I, I'm not preaching on this as a favor to Steve, but if I do offend anyone today, please come for at least one more Sunday so Steve doesn't think it's because of this message that no one's here next week. But um, seriously, as I prayed about what to preach on today, I felt convicted to speak on this topic of mastering money. Uh, as unpopular as it may be, in, especially in a church context. Because you've probably noticed, we don't, we don't actually make a big show of our offering here. Um, I think a lot of churches, they'll spend some time, a time of giving and pass around an offering plate or an offering basket. But we just do a brief announcement on it. And part of the reason for this is we don't want you to think that we're after, that's what we're after, that, that money is the most important thing um, in terms of what we want from you. And I've been at churches where money and giving is talked about constantly. And I've talked to non-believers who are so turned off by these constant requests. And also, I know many of you have come from maybe church experiences where um, there's been mismanagement of church funds and you've you felt a violation of trust. And so I think in a lot of ways it's easy to just avoid this topic altogether, but I, I don't know if that's the answer either. I don't know if that's right. And so as I thought about talking about it today... Um, you know, I, I get the sense, especially um, in more recent months, that there's, there's a real kind of anxiety around money uh, as we kind of sense that we're, we're entering into what seems like a, a recession, you know, economically. Uh, interest rates are going up. If you tried to buy a home recently, inflation is on the rise. Um, it seems like just, you know, a few years ago, you could get a lunch for like 5 to $10. Now you go out to lunch, it's like, you got to spend close to $20, it seems like, just to, to, to eat as one person. Um, I'm not even going to mention gas or grocery costs. But all of this, I think, kind of stirs, you know, fear and anxiety within us. And this affects all of us. And the truth is God and, G- and Jesus talk about money quite a bit in the Bible. One third of, about one-third of Jesus' parables are related to money or finance or within that context. One of every six verses in the Gospels deal with the topic of money or possessions. And there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that deal with money and possessions. And so I actually feel like it would almost be pastoral negligence to to not talk about this topic regularly when so many of us struggle with it on a daily basis and when God talks about it as much as he does through his word. Money has the power, I think, to form faith and move us towards God when viewed and used God's way. But money can also be a very compelling substitute. For God can be a false idol because it promises many of the things that God provides, happiness, security, control, comfort, but ultimately it cannot deliver those things, and so it deceives us. And in the parable of the sower, Jesus said that some seeds were sown among the thorns, and if you remember, one of them, those that were sown among the thorns are those who hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth. And the desires for other things come in and choke that word out, making it unfruitful. And so um, this is what money can often do. It can deceive us. It lies to us. and promises things that it cannot deliver. We place our faith in money because it promises us, us contentment, comfort, control. 
But God wants us to seek these things in him because ultimately they can only be found in him alone. The world and the enemy will try and deceive you into thinking that money can provide these things for you and that money is worthy of your trust. But this is a lie. And so I want you to know my goal today is not to lecture you about how you need to give more to the church or how you should manage your finances or even tell you what I want from you. My goal today is to share with you just a little bit of my own journey of growing to trust God in this area and to share about what God wants for you, not from you. What is it that God wants for you when it comes to money? Um, I, I think if you've been here for any time, you've, you've probably heard me share some of, some of these stories before, but I grew up in the home. Uh, my dad and my parents immigrated here uh, just before I was born from Korea, and uh, he came with $200 in his pocket. Anyone else experience this? I feel like anyone who immigrated here came with $200 in their pocket. It was like the standard amount that an immigrant would come with. He came with $200 in his pocket, and he had just finished med school in Korea, and he was pursuing the American dream. So he moved uh, to St. Louis to establish uh, his practice in urology. And even though he was a doctor, I think many of us would just assume, well, we were a doctor's family. We did, we did very well. He did very well, and we grew up wealthy. But that was actually not the case for us. Um, he, served, he was a doctor in a, in a very poor kind of blighted town in, uh, called Alton, Illinois, just across the river in, from St. Louis. And malpractice insurance was very high, and he tried to manage his own practice. And there was a lot, it was a lot of ups and downs. Um, money didn't come easy. And I remember seeing my dad's basket and realizing, like, all this paper that we had drawn on, and we'd only drawn on one side, and he was pretty upset. And he was like, why didn't you draw on both sides? You know, why are you throwing away all this good paper? And I remember as a kid thinking, like, what's the big deal? You know, it's just paper. But, you know, that's the stress that I think many of us probably experienced even as immigrant families uh, during times when things got tight. And uh, I remember even in college, you know, that um, there were some semesters where I didn't even know if I was going to be able to enroll because uh, money was tight. Uh, there was a point where three of us were actually going to college at the same time. My mom had um, four kids in the span of six years, and, and that's a lot. It's a lot to, to ask of anyone to pay for. And um, I just remember the stress that it induced, not just on my parents, but even us as, us, as we got older. And I remember thinking, you know, as a young person that um, I don't like this. I don't like this feeling. I don't want my family, when I grow up, to feel like this kind of stress. Um, and so I kind of committed myself. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save. I'm going to do my best and manage my money in a way that we're never in a position where we have to be stressed out about it. And so um, I studied accounting. What else should you study to do this, right, at the University of Illinois? And um, when I graduated, I got a great job in public accounting. And after a couple years, I, I uh, migrated over to commercial real estate finance. And uh, I just started to climb, you know, the corporate ladder, like many of us in this room probably have. And I was working for one of the largest companies in the world. And um, every year, my pay would go up. And um, I remember having, you know, in my 20s, like this number in my head, like, if I can get to this number, I think I'll be good. I'll feel at least secure. Um, and I remember every year just trying to get that to that number. And... In my 30s, uh, I, I started pursuing my uh, MBA, and I went to business school. My company was paying for it, and, and you know, I, I just started to really climb this corporate ladder and experience the good life. And I felt like my calling was actually just to serve the church, to be a good deacon or elder, 
And that was the way that I was going to live out my faith. And the way I would describe my life back then is living the American dream, but with a Judeo-Christian ethic. Meaning I really looked no different from the average person in America in terms of my pursuits and my possessions, except I just tried to do it in a little more Christian way. Right? This is a picture of our family back in 2011, and this is when we were living the dream. And 10 years ago, just actually not even two months after this picture was taken, uh, my wife was diagnosed with cancer, um, stage 4 lymphoma. And just in the span of a few days, I suddenly realized that everything that money promises is, is actually an illusion. Power, security, control, even happiness and health, the things that we take for granted. Um, it's just a facade, really. The money can't deliver those things when you're in the throes of cancer. And we had good insurance you know, through my work, but um, I ended up taking eight months off of work, unpaid leave, um, to, you know, as we kind of walked through chemotherapy and to care for our, my three kids who were, you know, at the time, age three, six, and nine. And because of this, it wiped out most of our savings. And all of this, when, when Kim got better uh, later that year, um, and she was in remission, um, I tried to go back to work, and it was very difficult for me. And I actually spiraled into this really dark season of anxiety and depression. If you've been in our church, you've, you've heard me talk about this before. And one of the big reasons was because I, I just felt, felt this immense pressure going back to work. Like, I was the sole breadwinner of my family. Um, I was the one who was providing insurance. And, you know, I, I could not lose my job. And, and I really struggled. And, and I think because of that, I just started to crumble under that pressure. And anxiety just started to overwhelm me to the point where um, I, I was on disability and I couldn't go to work. I was even on medication. <coughs> and I share this with you because I just want you to know, like, I've been, I think, where most of you have been, you know, in terms of that struggle. I know what it feels like. Um, and so I'm speaking from a place where uh, hopefully you can sense a level of, of empathy and understanding. Um, Matthew 19, Jesus has this encounter with a, uh, a rich young ruler. It says, just then a man came to Jesus and he asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. You know, uh, I remember reading this when I was younger, and this interaction was just very confusing to me, because it almost seems like Jesus is saying that if you keep all the commandments, and if you live a moral life, you can have eternal life. But I, I want to dig a little deeper into this passage. You know, when you list out the Ten Commandments, you see that the first four deal with loving God. Um... And this is kind of the vertical focus. How do you love God? How do you honor God? 
through these four commandments. And then the last six that deal with loving and honoring our fellow man is more of a horizontal focus. And you'll notice that when this young man approaches Jesus and he asks him which commands he must obey, Jesus doesn't start with any of the first four that deal with loving God. Instead, he starts with those addressing love for your fellow man, the second grouping. However, I want you to notice one more thing. Jesus also leaves out one command from this group, and it's the very last command. He says, you shall not covet. So what, what is going on here? You can jump to that next slide for me. Um, I believe Jesus already knows what is in the heart of this young man. And he's simply trying to help him see what he is blind to by first playing to his strengths. This is a man who has everything going for him. He's young, he's wealthy, he's power, he has influence. And he also seems like a genuinely likable guy. He gets along with everyone. You know, many of us, I think, would probably fit into this description. But there's one thing that he treasures, there's one thing that he trusts more than God, and it's his money, and it's the possessions that he's garnered through his money. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't expose him by asking him if he obeys the commands to love God, or even by asking if he covets his neighbor's possessions. Instead, he goes right for the jugular, and he says what? He says, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, come follow me. And you can imagine how quiet it is suddenly got in this crowd of people. This rich, self-confident young man who had a quick answer for everything is suddenly speechless. And sheepishly, he walks away. Not one more word needs to be said because everyone can see where his true love lies. It's not with God. It's with his money and it's with his things. You know, money itself is not innately evil. And having lots of money is not inherently wrong. Money itself is actually morally neutral. It is the love of money that is sinful. In 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul instructs Timothy, he says, For the love of money is, is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And when you read the Gospels, you realize that so much of Jesus' ministry was not only about revealing God who, for who he is, but actually about revealing ourselves for who we are, coming face to face with our true self. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges for us when it comes to money. It's very easy, I think, to be judgmental towards others. But the truth is, I think we often tend to give ourselves a free pass. You think, oh, I, I'm good. I don't really struggle with money. But I want to challenge us a bit on this. You know, I, I put together a list of 10 possible signs that money, possibly more than Jesus, might have a hold of your heart. Uh, one, if you incur debt you cannot manage or purchase things that you cannot afford, maybe money has a hold of your heart. Two, if making more money does not make you more grateful or generous, but more proud and stingy, Three, if your first thought upon earning a raise or coming across more money is to immediately plan how to spend it on yourself. Maybe money has a hold of your heart. Four, if you can give sporadically because it makes you feel good, but you cannot give sacrificially because it makes you feel bad. Five, if your kids' grades or college admissions, which represents their future earning potential, if that stresses you out or causes you to put undue pressure on your children, 
Maybe you have too much faith in money. When you cannot receive a financial gift or help from others without feeling insecure or indebted. When you look down on those who have less as lazy. Or when you judge those who ask for help as entitled. When you look down on those who have more as ungodly and judge them by how they spend their money. It goes both ways. When a dispute over money has caused you to break off a relationship with a friend or a family member. When you're envious of others who have more or ashamed that you don't have as much as others. You know, I think the truth is all of us can probably find something that we can identify with, right, in this list. And if any of these make you a little uncomfortable, then maybe that is something that we need to bring before the Lord to confront and to confess. That maybe we've given our love and allegiance to something that only God is worthy of. I want to share three simple principles regarding money that have been helpful for me in my own struggle to love God more than money. And I'm not saying money is no longer a temptation in my life or I've somehow arrived in this area. But I will say embracing these truths have helped decrease the power of money over my life and helped me increase my passion for God. And so here are these three things. One is all that I have comes from God and belongs to God. And so I am just his humble steward. All that I have comes from God and belongs to God, and I am just a humble steward of what belongs to him. So be faithful. Be faithful. I think this is the first and the the most fundamental principle that every person has to accept if you call yourself a follower of Jesus. Because if you want to love God more than money or possessions, Paul writes this. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You see, if we cannot accept the fact that everything that we possess comes directly from God, then we will believe the lie that we have somehow earned it, that we own it, that we deserve it, and so we get to decide what to do with it. But if you notice, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus, when Jesus talks about money, it's always framed in the context of stewardship. Meaning everything we have in this life comes from God and belongs to God. And we are simply managing it for him based on his desires, his direction, his will, and his wisdom. And it's easy to think the way of the world, right? Because the world says it's mine. It's it's here because of me. It's my hard work. It's my years of schooling. It's my studies. It's my dedication. It's my doing. But God says, even in Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, he says, You may say to yourself, my power, the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. See, even our ability to make money and provide for ourselves and our families is a gift of God, and it's an expression of his covenantal love towards us. And I think if we can just get past this idea that somehow belongs to us, or even, you know, as a a Christian, I think oftentimes we think, okay, 10% goes to God, 90%, the rest of it belongs to me. What if we can get past that and embrace that it all belongs to God? And then we will understand what it means to be a steward and how to use our resources to really serve God and serve the kingdom. You know, before Kim and I got married, we, I remember like the week before we sat down and we wrote out our wedding vows. And um, one of the first things we wrote, 
and we recited to one another, honors this principle. And, and you know, to be honest, I, I don't even know if we really understood what we were writing at the time. But looking back at it, I think it, it's really um, reminded me of what's important. When we said, I, I remember saying this, you know, on our wedding day as we wrote it together, is that I take you, Kimberly, to be my wife from this day forward, to join with you and to share all that the Lord has planned for us, to give and to receive from his hand. To give and to receive from his hand. And that's the language of stewardship, isn't it? Um, at the time, as I said, I don't think we really understood what we were promising. But I do know that we wanted to remember that everything we would receive in our home comes from God. And everything that we would give comes from God. And as the parable of the talents tells us, some of us may be entrusted with a lot. And some of us may have just a little. The amount is not important. What matters is that we are faithful with what God has given us to oversee. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful, regardless of the amount of that trust. And so what what does it look like to be a faithful steward? I, I don't know. I'm not here to tell you exactly what you should do with your money and what it might look like for you. But I will say this. When you understand that God owns it all, and that we are accountable to him, then our job is not to worry about money or worry about our provisions. Our chief concern should be to seek first the kingdom of God and seek to become like the king, to grow in his righteousness. So not just in our giving, but in our saving and even in our spending should reflect our commitment to this core value, the kingdom and the king. And God says, I will take care of you and all the things that the world worries about as you take care of what I have called you to do and called you to be. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Trust that I protect and that I care for my own. You know, one of the ways that I've experienced this reality is when we were forced to find a new home uh, when I um, entered into the ministry. Um, I just hit my seven-year anniversary uh, last month. And I remember, you know, seven years ago, um, when I accepted the job, I, I took a 75% pay cut. And, you know, um, as a CPA, you, you can be pretty good with numbers and finagle things, but I was like, I cannot squeeze water out of a rock here. How am I going to make, like, 75% pay cut and make ends meet? And um, so it was a real kind of step of faith. And one of the first things, you know, that was obvious was we were going to have to sell our home. And this was our home. I, I know I've showed this picture before. Uh, we, we bought a home way out in Huntley. Um, don't judge me. It wasn't that expensive. <laughs> we actually bought it as a bank foreclosure and put a lot of money into it. And, it was, um, and we really were able to kind of revitalize and renew this home. And uh, we had our own private pond stocked with fish. And I built like a 300-foot zip line. You probably can't see it there. And this was like our dream home, 2.25 acres and just... Um, you know, our kids were being homeschooled at the time, and, and it was just the perfect idyllic setting um, to raise a family and, and to, to homeschool our kids. But I couldn't even, you know, with this new job, I couldn't even pay the property taxes on this thing anymore. And so uh, one of the first things we had to do was we had to sell it. And I remember this, this was a really stressful process for us, you know, um, because I was just bleeding cash every month. And it took a while to sell this house. It almost took a year. Like, it took like eight or nine months, I think. And, um, you know, because it, it, there aren't a lot of 
uh, homes at this price point, you know, especially out where we lived, uh, way out in the country. And um, I remember during this process, you know, we started looking for a new home closer to the church. And we had just moved into Northfield Presbyterian Church over here in Wheeling, not too far from here. And um, just praying that God would provide a new home for us. But, I, you know, I knew we really couldn't afford much. And so um, we started looking in the Schaumburg area because it was a little more reasonable. The taxes weren't too crazy. And the schools were still very good. And we, were, uh, we found a home that we all loved. We walked through it. My kids liked it. It wasn't this home. But, but it was, you know, it was a home. And um, we got... We were negotiating with um, the seller, and we were just about to sign the contract, thought we had agreed upon a price, and, um, and then the seller told us that, um, well, this is the old, old lady who owns the home, and she went to the hospital because she was sick. And so we're like, oh, you know, that's too bad. Take your time. You know, your health is more important. We can wait. And then, like, the next day, we found out it was under a contract with, a, with another buyer. And so I think she, she lied to us <laughs> and just used our offers as a way to kind of negotiate a higher price with someone else. And so it was a very sour experience, and on top of that, you know, we, we, this was the home that we wanted, and it just completely fell through. And we were still trying to sell this home, and so I was really stressing out. And at the time, I was just thinking, like, I don't know, Lord, what, what are we going to do here? Uh, I'm trying to be faithful, you know, and, and um, what's going on? And literally, within three days, I get this email from um, a brother who actually goes to our sister church over at Harvest. And the header of this email, I pulled it up this week. It says, town home for rent in the Glen. Know any ministry families? Question mark. And apparently he had lived in this town home for like a year, but he, had, he was moving into another single family home in the area. And the owners of this home were Christians. That's town home. And they were looking for uh, a, a family that was in the ministry to rent it to um, because they were out of the country. And this home kind of served as our home base. And so, um, in terms of collecting, like, mail and things. And so, um, when I got this email, I was like, um, I'm a ministry family. I'm looking for a home. <laughs> so, I immediately emailed uh, this guy, and I was like, um, can, tell me more. And, um, you know, as I did more research, I realized, wow, this is, this is actually something that uh, we never even really prayed for or asked for. This was in an area that we couldn't afford you know, over in the Glenview-Northbrook area, where I know many of us are from. And this is great schools and so much closer to church than even Schomburg and the home that we were looking at. And, um, and I realized, wow, God had answered a prayer that we haven't even prayed. And he provided a home that we didn't even deserve. And again, it wasn't a big home, and we still live there now. But what was crazy was, uh, you know, the owners, they were looking for a ministry family, and, and they were only charging rent, like, less than half of what they could get in the market. Because the most important thing for them wasn't the money. It was just, we just want someone that is a believer and that we can trust. And I said, I'm a believer. You can trust me. <laughs> <laughs> and so we moved into the home. And we've been there for like, I don't know, five years now. And we still pay like less than half of the market. And, you know, I love telling this story because I think it's such a great um, testimony of God's provision. That here I was so worried about, you know, this home that fell through, and what we had given up, and God had something better for us. And I think that's true. You know, when we seek first his kingdom, when we seek first his righteousness, that he will provide, and it will come in unexpected ways, um, and sometimes even beyond what we had hoped for, and, and he will give us things that we don't even pray for. 
The second thing I want to share is that um, freedom over, over the bondage of money can only be found in surrender. So be generous. Um, during COVID, I convinced my daughter, Sailor, to watch the entire Lord of the Rings series with me. <laughs> it's like 10 hours or something. And, you know, I was struck by the power of this ring. And it reminded me of how it consumes anyone who touches it. And it made me think of the power of money. And how when we have it, it can just pull us in and consume us. And we can't even think straight. And even the most pure and the most humble among us, like Frodo here, can be captivated by it. And the only way to be set free from its power is to let it go, is to give it away. And I remember when I was moving up the corporate ladder and I was making really good money, I was actually struck at times of how my perception of people began to change just because I had more money than I used to. And how I began to judge people who didn't have money. I began to wonder, like, well, why don't they just work a little harder? It's not that hard. I did it. Why don't they just manage it a little smarter? And I didn't like what I was becoming. And, and it was very subtle, but I could see the pride growing in my own heart. The best way to mute the power of money over your life is not to make more of it or to hoard it. It is to give it away. And when you continue in the Gospels, you encounter, we encounter another man who was also very rich and who also loved money. And his name was Zacchaeus. And he was the chief tax collector. And he was despised by his own people. Why? Because he was employed by the Romans and he had accumulated all this great wealth by shamelessly cheating his own people. But unlike this rich young ruler that we talked about earlier, no one liked this guy. But in this story, Jesus handles it very differently, doesn't he? He takes a very different approach. He, knowing the condition of this man's heart, Jesus shows Zacchaeus a love that no one else would by inviting himself over to his home to eat with him. And Zacchaeus' response is remarkable. It says, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to, to Jesus, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now I want you to notice that Jesus' declaration that salvation has come to Zacchaeus, even though he says he was only going to give half of his possessions to the poor, not all of it. And you see, it was never about the amount. It was never about even where it was going. It was the condition of the heart. Jesus' chief concerner was not how much we give, it's our heart. It's our heart that God is after. Last week, I talked to the youth group about dating at their lock-in. Um, and I was wrapping up my talk, and, and I threw up this slide. Um, I said, when do you know if you're ready to date? And one of the moms that was there in the back afterwards, she told me that when this slide came up, all, all the youth group kids, they started, they like sat straight up in their chair. They're like, all right, here it comes. <laughs> And they were like, um, you could just tell, they were like going to come home, they are going to tell you guys as parents, like, Pastor Peter said I could date. And so I, I flashed up this slide, and here's number one, two things. When my most important relationship and the top priority in my life is my relationship with Jesus, and cultivating and growing that relationship, then maybe I'm ready to date <laughs> in high school. And uh, this mom said that as soon as they saw that slide and read it, all of a sudden, their shoulders just kind of slumped, and they sat back down their chair. <laughs> and they realized they didn't even pass the first test. 
And it made me think of the rich young ruler, right? He just kind of like, <laughs> I'm going to leave now. And then I flashed the second slide, and I was like, here's the second condition. When you can hold a dating relationship with an open hand, and you can fully surrender it to God's wisdom, to God's will for my life, then you might be ready to date in high school. <laughs> and that took care of all the rest of them. <laughs> but I, you know, I share this because I think actually when I was, I was thinking about this, this is actually really no different from, from our love for money, right? Our love and for affection of another teenager when we're teenagers is really no different. It's, it, they're both idols. Um, and we have to hold it with an open hand. And when we surrender to God, it loses his power over us. And when we submit to his will, to his wisdom, to his purpose, and we seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, we don't have to worry. God will provide. You know, recently I, I was, um, I was uh, at the home of, of, of one of our family members here and um, having dinner, and, and um, we were just talking about church, and then I, and I just asked him, like, how, tell me a story, like, how, how did you come to faith, and and um, this brother was just sharing about how, you know, he, he really struggled growing up in the church and really church and, and his faith was not important to him um, through really his whole life, even through his college years. And it wasn't until he became a young adult and he started going to church and then he befriended another, um, another brother who actually goes to our church as well. I'm not going to embarrass him, I'm not going to say their names. And he befriended this other brother, and, and they became really close. And he began to observe, like, how this guy lived. And not just that, how he managed his money. And this was a brother who made really good money. And yet, the way that he would um, be so generous uh, with this money, and the way the choices that he would make with his finance demonstrated a real faith in God, so much that it convicted this, this brother that I was meeting with that to come to faith himself, that it was that, witnessing the way he managed, this other brother managed his money and trusted God with it, is what drew him to God and to trust God himself. And, I, you know, I, I've never heard anything like that before, actually. And I thought, wow, that's such a powerful witness, isn't it? That just by exercising faith in God through our finances, through our money, through the way we manage our money, and through the way we're generous in giving and trust God, whether we have a lot or a little, can be such a powerful witness for God. And so, surrender. Be free from the bondage of money and be generous. Lastly, um, and number three, God has given us life that we might enjoy all things. Not all things that we might enjoy life. So be grateful. God has given us life that we might enjoy all things, not all things that we might enjoy life. So be grateful. The world says, get more, accumulate more, hoard more. Then you will be happy. Then you will be secure. Then you will be safe. But Jesus says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. God has not given us all things so that we can enjoy life. He has given us life through himself that we might enjoy all things. In that order. The world has it backwards, but God does not. And when we discover life comes from knowing and from loving God, the giver, and not just his gifts, we can not only enjoy God as we were made to do, but we can truly enjoy all things. And this is why Paul tells Timothy, for everything God created is good, 
And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And even the most simple things in life, like eating good food with good friends, playing pickleball, or playing with your dog, or watching a sunrise or a sunset, enjoying a good night's sleep on a warm bed, all of this can be worshipped to God when it is received with thanksgiving and faith, trusting in a good God who enjoys giving us good things to enjoy. You know, in Philippians 4, Paul says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Um, you know, I, I think since I entered into the ministry, um, I, I've come to learn and really appreciate this verse more when, when Paul says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Um, because I think it's hard to know this when your life and your income is always doing this, is like on an upward trajectory. But when you kind of experience life with a lot, a little, a lot, and then a little again, <laughs> um, you realize you really don't need that much to be happy. And it struck me, you know, I, I had my birthday a couple months ago, and I was reflecting on this, and I was thinking, you know, you don't need a lot to be happy. You just need to know the one who loves you, and you need to be surrounded with people who love you well and that you can love well. And your life is so full. And I was reminded of that. And I was reminded how good God is. And just as I look at my own life, you know, we don't have a lot of things anymore, at least in terms of possessions or by the world's view. But I, I really do believe and can say I, I feel like I'm, I'm one of the most richly blessed people here. I want to close with just one last testimony. Um, you know, as I said, when we entered into the ministry, there was a lot of changes in my life. Um, but, you know, we prayed about entering into the ministry, and, and I felt this very strong conviction, like, this is what the Lord was calling me to do. And so I was ready to walk away from, you know, everything that we had. Um, but then I also realized, like, um, that wasn't necessarily true of my family, right? Like, Kim was on board, and she supported me. Um, but, you know, my kids, they were young, and they don't know what's going on. And you try to explain this to them. All they know is that their life was all of a sudden <laughs> drastically changed for the worse. Like they went from having their own rooms and their own queen-size beds to like now crammed into a little small room and bunk beds together. And they couldn't afford Apple products anymore, which is huge, huge for <laughs> teenagers. And I remember my daughter, Sayla, she was like really, con someone reminded me this recently, my daughter was really concerned that we couldn't afford Chipotle anymore. <laughs> and... Um, but I realized as a father, you know, one of, the, one of your most deepest um, desires is to provide um, for your kids. I think um, one of the biggest concerns for me wasn't even so much like, could I give them these things? But um, it, I was concerned about what it was going to do to their faith. Like, if they were going to somehow associate God with, um, as um, no longer, you know, providing for them because so much was being taken away from them. And, um, you know, after we sold our home, um, I didn't realize this until like a couple years later, but the very first Instagram post that my, my oldest son, Caleb, ever posted was, uh, show the picture here, 
was of him looking at our, our backyard and our home in Huntley. And, and, and all he said was, I'm going to miss this place. And um, I remember Kim, my wife Kim saw that and she just started to cry. And because uh, she realized, like, you know, Caleb's kind of a quiet kid, but, um, um, you know, it was costly for him. And we didn't even realize it until years later. And uh, like many of you, um, stepping into ministry, you know, as I said, um, God has found a way to reduce our expenses in a very miraculous way so that, you know, we could, we could live off um, a much reduced income. But um, as many of you probably here worry about, like, how are we going to pay for college? I got three kids. Um, how is this going to happen? These costs are crazy. And that was a real concern for me. But in faith, I just surrendered to God, just trusting somehow. I don't know how, but he was going to provide. And so um, my oldest son, Caleb, is a junior now in university. And uh, before he entered school, I just told him, look, um, I'm trying my best to help you out here, but I'm going to need your help. And so... Um, Here's my commitment to you. I'm going to pay for half your college. <laughs> um, I think I saved enough for you. Don't tell Timothy and Sailor. I haven't saved anything for them. <laughs> I've saved enough to pay for half of your schooling, I think. So you are on the hook for the other half. And so um, he was like, okay. And so, um, you know, he just tried to, to get jobs to, to, to do his share, to pay for his half. And I felt bad because my, my own dad paid for all of my college, and yet I couldn't do the same for my son. Um, and so Caleb would just find jobs here and there, and, and then like about a, a year and a half ago, um, he got this, um, got this great job at, at um, this restaurant, I don't want to say the name, but it's a Japanese, it's a very nice upscale Japanese restaurant near our house, and he just started out like as a busboy and then as a host, and he, he worked really hard, and I think he earned the respect of the manager and the bosses and the owner there, and, and within like two months, he was promoted to to be a server, and he was only 19 years old, and you know, that's, it's, it's pretty tough to get a job as a server, <laughs> as a 19-year-old, and, um, and he was serving alcohol, and I'm like, how is that possible? You can't even drink alcohol. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's okay, I can still serve it. <laughs> but you know, he was making really good money as a 19-year-old, and all of a sudden, like, oh man, I think he can actually pay for his half of college. <laughs> And I would tell him when he'd come home, you know, he worked really hard and a lot of hours, and he worked six days a week. And, and um, I'd say, wow, you know, look how God has provided for you, Caleb. Like, we didn't know how you were going to pay for your half, because the truth is the first year in college, like, he couldn't pay for his half. I ended up paying for, like, 90% of it. And, um, and yet, God provided here. And, um, and I realized as he's working at this, you know, restaurant, like, he comes across a lot of wealthy people, too. And as he's serving them, he's realizing, like, it's really, you know, money. I don't know if I want to be like a lot of these people, even though they have lots of money, even though that was really the desire of his heart. And yet God um, continued to provide for us. And it was to the point where I know some of you guys would go and visit him, and he would, be, and he would ask for him as your server, and you would tip him very well. And um, and he got to the point where he was like, I don't know if I want to go back to college anymore. <laughs> I think I just want to be a server. And I was like, oh. So I had to tell some of you guys, like, stop tipping him so well. <laughs> like, but, you know, we were so grateful because suddenly, like, he had this income that we didn't expect to pay for his half. And then um, a couple semesters ago, he, he actually took a semester off and decided, I'm 
I'm just gonna work. So he worked from like January, the spring semester last year through August, just so he could save up for his half of college. And um, you know, for the most part, he, he, he almost got there. And you know, we're, I, I was just really grateful because I saw, wow, God really provided here. I didn't know how it was gonna happen, but it happened. And then recently, um, like a few months ago, I got a call from um, our great aunt and great uncle, and they wanted to meet with us. And they said, well, you know, we heard that Caleb is taking a semester off to, to work for college, and so, um, you know, we, we want to meet, and we want to help you guys out. And, and I was like, no, it's okay. We, we, we pretty much figured this out. We're, we're good. They're like, no, we really want to meet with you guys. And, um, you know, being a good Korean, I said, no, it's okay. I don't want to meet with you. We don't need your money. <laughs> it's like fighting over that restaurant bill. But they kept insisting. And so finally we met with them, and I met with them, with Kim and Caleb and my great aunt and uncle. And um, they just sat down. They said, we really want to help pay for Caleb's college tuition. And, um, and again, I said, no, it's okay. <laughs> but then they began to share their story and um, began to share about how they were both actually are retired doctors. So they had done pretty well. And um, what they began to share, though, was that 60 years ago or so, when they were in Korea and they were in medical school, it was so hard for them. And, um, and how, um, for my great uncle, like he couldn't go to school um, and stay awake in med school because he had to work a third shift just so he could pay for school. And um, my great aunt was just sharing about how um, you know, she had to pay her way through school as well, and it was really hard. And, and even though she had family and um, an aunt, actually, that was wealthy and could have helped her, um, she had to go on and do it on her own. And somehow they grinded through it. They got through med school. They had very good careers as doctors. And um, now they wanted to share and, and bless us. And um, I was sitting there with Kayla, and I was thinking, wow, you know, I thought we were, we were fine. And yet here, here you know, are, is these people who just want to share with us and bless us. And, um, and I realized, like, somehow God had set in motion 60 years ago that this, these two people would struggle to pay for their own schooling. And that many, many years later, um, God would put it in their hearts to help us in our time of need. And their only condition was, you know, someday, Caleb, when you... When you make money and you're in a position where you can help other people, then can you just promise to do that? And he's like, yeah, sure. And I realized, you know, more than the tuition, more than these costs, more than miraculous ways of, of making ends meet, I was just so blessed to, to be able to just have a moment with my son and for him to see um, God is real. God loves him. God is providing ways that even Caleb couldn't understand. And um, that God can be treasured and trusted, and that he will provide. Let's pray together.